0: FIOS is not cable. We're wired differently, which means you can get the fastest internet available with equal upload and download speeds from 50 to 500 megs. So you can upload 200 photos before your favorite song is finished. Click the ad and switch to FIOS today to get our best offer ever. Hello and welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Thanks for tuning in tonight and hopefully every Wednesday, whether you uh, tune in at 6 6 p.m. Pacific or 9 Eastern, or sometime afterwards as you catch us from the archives. You know, it's really gas in my tank to hear you take me uh, and, uh, with you uh, on your iPod when you're exercising or shopping or relaxing. I'm really glad you value what my wonderful guests have to say. And my thanks goes out this week to Lisa Thiel for the use of her music. That uh, piece you were uh, being teased with was a little snippet from her piece called Warrior Goddess. And I hope you could catch the lyrics. Warrior Goddess, Warrior Goddess, I need your wisdom for this age. So apropos. And if you like that, you can find more of her music um, on Amazon. There's also a website she has called sacreddream.com, or you can just Google her. It's Lisa Thiel, T-H-I-E-L, and her wonderful music is fortunately easy to find. Well, I hope you're all enjoying the dog days of summer. Uh, this month, I'm celebrating not just my own personal birthday, but also uh, this month of August, it marks my year here at Blog Talk Radio, which makes Voices of the Sacred Feminine three years old this month. The first two years of archives are available for free downloading from my website at com. I invite you to not miss the opportunity to take advantage of these very uh, relevant interviews they Still are even a few years later uh, from people like Jean Houston, Selena Fox, Jean Schnoda bolin Rhiannon Eisler, Father Roy Bourgeois, that uh, Mary Noel Priest who was excommunicated for talking about uh, the Vatican, um, you know, committing a sin against women by discriminating against them, not ordaining them, or Matthew Fox, another goddess guy who got uh, excommunicated by uh, by the church more people than I can name here with really great interviews. So check it out. Um, You know, it's my mission to teach and raise awareness and uh, help create a caring culture. And my guests' wisdom and knowledge help toward that goal. And thanks again uh, goes out to those of you have been, who have been so generous uh, with your prayers and good wishes for my husband Roy's recovery from surgery. He's doing pretty good, uh, little by little, and eventually he'll uh, be better with his new bionic knee. <laughs> I keep telling him he's got one sexy scar there. <laughs> Uh, Knee replacement is a hard recovery, but he's a real hard worker, and I'm proud of him, and the doctor says he's doing fantastic. So thanks from both of us for your caring and continued good energy and support. And, yes, I am taking care of me too. It's very hard to wear the caretaker hat, Uh, but thank you for making sure I'm focused on that. You know, it's like when we put the mask on ourselves first on the airplane uh, before we put it on our loved ones. You know, we really can't take care of them if we don't take care of ourselves first. And uh, some of you have been asking me about the What's the Buzz segment uh, because for the last couple months I've been having two guests uh, sometimes in the evening. I've not actually had time for What's the Buzz, uh, that segment when we talk about goddess ideals revered or ignored out there in the world uh, that make those crazy bees buzz around in my bonnet every week. The last week, with all the talk of politics and the mosque and the religious inequality uh, with Patrick McCollum, it was really, really very what's the buzz like, the, you know, the whole interview. Well, this week, uh, after we talk to our guest, mother and pagan elder uh, Morgo Adler, uh, I'll have an abbreviated what's the buzz segment on um, how to have a smooth mercury retrograde because Friday of last week we entered mercury retrograde and Mama Donna Hens has a good article in the Huffington Post about how to roll with it. Uh, I also want to share with you an article I just wrote for the Examiner Uh, called Reconciling Our Pagan Spirituality With Our Politics. And depending on how much time we have, uh, we might talk about that uh, Rolling Stones cover uh, that had vampires and blood and sex. Um, and uh, also sex trafficking of girls in the United States and, uh, you know, poor Iraqi women as well. So stay tuned. Uh, But now it's time to get to my long-awaited interview uh, with Margot Adler. And uh, just in case you're new to all of this and you don't recognize her name, let me give you a bit of her bio. Uh, Margot is a journalist, a lecturer. She's also a Wiccan priestess, a radio journalist, and a correspondent for National Public Radio. Um, She's probably maybe best well-known, I'll have to ask her, um, as the author of uh, the book Drawing Down the Moon. Uh, it was considered a watershed in American neo-pagan circles because it provided the first comprehensive look at modern nature-based religions in the United States. For many years, it was the only introductory work about the American neo-pagan communities. And she has another book out, too, called Heretic's Heart, A Journey Through Spirit and Revolution. And that was published, uh, in 1997 by Beacon Press. Well, Margot, thank you for being on the show and welcome. I'm really glad to be with you. Well, um, you know, thinking about your book, um, uh, Drawing Down the Moon, considering how, I guess, under the radar pagan groups used to be, was that a hard book to write, you know, finding these groups all around the country? Well,
1: it was a it was really a very, very long, complicated story. Um, actually, I started out being involved myself personally, so... I got involved with um, Brooklyn Pagan Way and then a Welsh tradition and then Gardnerian Wicca and so forth. And as I was going through all of this, uh, I started subscribing at that time way back in the 70s, in the early 70s and mid-70s. Most of the communication between different pagan groups happened very sporadically and with what we might call small newsletters. There clearly wasn't an Internet. There weren't you know, large pagan organizations. And so there were these tiny newsletters, and one of them was called Nemeton, and one of them was the Green Egg. And in the Green Egg, the Green Egg would have 50 pages that was devoted just to letters letters from different people involved in paganism to each other and so it became this huge it was almost like a chat room it became you know it would be considered that today and it had all the most interesting people communicating with each other so here i was this little newbie pagan that was in new york city in a group that i would have to say quite frankly wasn't very interesting Uh, the people in it weren't very intellectually interesting I knew there was a larger, more interesting pagan movement out there, but I wasn't really feeling that I was totally in it. And I would get this magazine, The Green Egg, every eight, eight times a year, and in it would be these 50 pages of letters of all these amazing people talking about this clearly more interesting, deeper, philosophical pagan movement out there that I was not experiencing at all. And then through, really through incredible fluke, I mean, it was one of those few times in my life where I had an almost psychic experience. I, I met an agent in a bar. I was with a sort of a guy who was introducing me to his agent, and, and she looked at me, and she said, what do you do? And I said in that sort of, you know, she was asking the kind of New York, what do you do? And I said, well, I work for Pacifica, which I did at the time. I, I work for Pacifica Radio, I do this radio show, and then literally a voice in my head spoke. And this I'm not a very psychic person. I'm not someone who has a lot of psychic stuff happen to me. But a voice spoke in my head and it said, You are standing on a nexus point in the universe, and whatever you do now will have great effect. Wow. <laughs> and at that moment I looked at her and I said, Well, and I'm also involved and this is these are words I would never have normally used with someone I didn't know. I said, and I'm also involved in Witchcraft. Now, you have to understand, I would have normally said Wicca, nature, religions, goddess, spirituality. I would have said all kinds of things. I would not have used the W word. But so for sensational. some reason, I had this sense in my head that I had to say this word, the witchcraft word. And, it, and of course, her eyes got bigger. And I told her about this thing called the pagan movement. And I told her that I had been, you know, that I, there were all these magazines and they, you know, communicated with each other and so forth. And there were these groups. And her eyes got wider and wider and wider, and she sort of said, You hooked her,
0: Margo. What? (laughs) You
1: hooked her. And she said, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book about it? And I said, and this is truth, truth, absolute truth, I said, Quite frankly, no. The written word terrifies me. The thing about radio is it goes in one ear and out the other, and people forget <laughs> about it immediately, right? And she said, Well, you know, I've just, I've just gotten, I've just branched off, I've just left an agency. If you're interested, um, call me in two weeks and I'll show you how to write a proposal. And I, quite frankly, I mean, I was 20 something, I was too scared. And because she had just left an agency, and was out on her own, was in that one moment when she was looking for clients, she called me.
2: Wow! And
1: um, and then uh, I wrote a proposal, I wrote another proposal, went around, blah, blah, blah. blah. I finally got, uh, finally after eight months, uh, it got accepted by somebody. I got the munici- munificent advance of $7,500, of which I got half. And then you asked me how hard was it to write the book. Well, at first I didn't have any confidence that I could do it. I'd never written anything. I'd never done anything like that. I locked myself up in the library for six months and decided that I couldn't write the book unless I had read the ten or twelve books that I thought I had to have read, like The White Goddess by Robert Graves and things like that. That you know, I felt like I couldn't write this book unless I had read those books, you know.
0: So I locked myself what? I can
1: understand that. So I locked myself in the library for like six months and did that. And I was like living on unemployment at the time. And then I wrote letters to all of those wonderful people in the Green Egg. And I said, hi, I'd love to visit you. I'd love to talk to you. I want to know what's happening. And I also formulated this huge questionnaire. And then I just, uh, you know, I interviewed hundreds of people. And I um, and that's how the first edition happened. And later I went later the movement changed, and I went to festivals and could you know could talk to people there and could put out questionnaires for my later editions and things worked in a very different way as the movement changed. But in the beginning, uh, you know, that's how it went.
0: So so let me, me ask three years. This. What? Three years to actually write the whole book.
1: Right, three years. Yeah.
0: And once it hit the, sh- once it was out there in the world, what kind of a reception did it get? I mean, was it just being bought At by? At the Pagan? beginning,
1: it got almost nothing. The first edition was just hardcover, and it was five thousand copies. And I do remember that I did go on Phil Donahue, which was pretty funny. Um, and I uh, had a very odd experience uh, doing that. But in general, I didn't have much publicity. It didn't really go that far. And then Beacon brought the, the um, paperback rights for like $4,000, which I got two of, and, um, and it still didn't really go anywhere. And then in '86, it was revised. And it had the fabulous cover then of these, these fabulous women, this woman on the beach in Oregon with the red candles in a circle. And I, at that time, the movement had changed a lot, and I got to write a lot about the impact of feminism and a lot of other stuff. And at that point, when it came out from Beacon Press in 86, in that new edition, suddenly it took off. Wow. It was like a book before its time, and it took that long for it to really, really make an impact.
0: Well, you know, you remind me of Anne Rice, you know, because we're going to talk about vampires later. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, and you probably know her interview with the vampire. It Mm -hmm. took years and years for it to become popular. But, um, well, you certainly have your finger on the pulse, I'd say, of uh, the early movement. How have, you know, what are some of the biggest ways or most surprising ways things have changed in the last years?
1: Well, um, I would say that in the last Fifteen years, really, there's been such a sea change, you can't even begin to even talk about the same movement. At this point, there are probably, you know, I would, I went around for years saying, oh, there are probably a couple hundred thousand pagans, but you can never tell because it's a decentralized movement, it's anarchistic, there's no one keeping records, et etc., cetera, et cetera. And now I would say that there are a lot of estimates that say there are anywhere from, you know, 750,000 to a million pagans, uh, contemporary pagans, that is, not indigenous
0: people and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, go on. Well, you know, uh, Patrick McCollum was on the show last week, and he threw out a statistic. I mean, I know the uh, New York University had said it's one of the fastest-growing religions in the United States, you know, when you put all the hybrids together. Uh, But Patrick last week said in Washington, for instance, Washington State, of the five top religions, Wicca is number two.
1: I, that's possible there. Um, on adherence.com, which is this wonderful website where you can find you know, how many Lutherans there are in Iowa and stuff like that, they put paganism as the 19th most popular religion worldwide, Okay. Which I think is pretty interesting. Um, there, when I was doing my research for the new edition, the one that came out in, in 2006, at that time, in 2002, there were already 5,000 websites. There were already, you know, in 2002, scholars had already said that. And one experiment that I did when I was um, doing this new edition, you know, you may know there's a program called StumbleUpon. And uh, it's the kind of program you can put on the computer and basically if you want to know, let's say, you're interested in wines. You can put this program on and you click and you're taken to one of the most popular wine websites, let's say. And then you click again and you're taken to another one. So I put in Wicca. And I, for two hours, I just clicked, 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 clicked. And the thing that was extraordinary was I had only seen one of the websites that I came across in two hours ever in my life. I had never seen them. And it never repeated. And I probably could have gone on for hours. So first of all, as far as numbers, there's just a huge expansion. Uh, then I would say there are much more important changes. First of all, the movement has come of age. It has become a world religion. Uh, and it has become a religion not of youth, of multi of a multi-generational movement. So you have now, you have second and third generation pagans. You have festivals where there are kitty tracks, teen tracks. People are talking about death and dying people are talking about you know there are AA groups for pagans there are seminaries there are there was the huge battle in which which was one in which the pentacle became a symbol that veterans could put on their gravestones in Arlington and military cemeteries that is a huge shift that has happened there is a peer reviewed academic um, pagan magazine. At this point, at the Association of, uh, for the Study of American Religion, paganism now has a track. There are papers given by pagans about pagans, etc. At the AAR, there there are two probably board members. There are two board members who are involved in paganism who are on the board of the parliament of the world's religions. And at each of the most recent of those parliaments, there have been at least 60 or 70 pagan representatives, even the ones that have been you know, far away in Australia and South Africa and so forth and so on. Um, there, I would say the biggest change, though, is the way people come into and find out about paganism. When I started out, <clears throat> I, you know, I didn't know there was no. It was all very secretive, and and it was very hard to find a group, and it was certainly hard to find a, a, a group that you really liked. As a matter of fact, the group that you ended up joining was probably the group that you found, not necessarily the group that you were simpatico with in any way. So, for example, I became a Gardnerian Wicca person, but probably if I was starting out today, I would become a Greco-Roman Reconstructionist or whatever. But that didn't exist when I was around. So um, all of these groups were very secretive. They didn't communicate with other groups. There were these small newsletters, and that was about it. So what happened to me was I went to England. I was searching for earth-based religions, goddess-based religions. I had no idea what I was. I finally came across the order of bards and druids in, uh, in, in, in Ireland and Wales, the pagan movement in Ireland and Wales. I came back here. I was looking. I had no idea what I was doing. I finally subscribed to the Waxing Moon, which was this magazine out of England, and I had no idea what they were talking about. Finally, I saw in a copy of the village voice i saw a lecture series that said friends of the craft and the only reason i even knew that craft was another name for wicca (laughs) was that i had happened to have read one letter somewhere that did this i mean this is how how crazy it was to find a group at that time and then when i got in what it's hard to believe. It's very yeah, it's hard to believe today that you would do that. I mean, today you can go on let's say witchbox.com and you can read about 70 different traditions. And you can go to a festival and you can see people putting on rituals from five or six different traditions. And you know, and so of course what started to happen was that people, you can't, uh, what's the old expression? How are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen Perry? And so, of course, a lot of the magic of these tiny little covens disappeared. And so the coven, to some extent, lost some of its power. I mean, this is a bad and good thing. Because what happened was the books by authors like me and Starhawk and others brought people in, Festivals brought people in. The Internet later brought people in. So now what you have is that it used to be that you would find these little groups. You would get into a little group. And then, like I, with the green egg, you'd finally find something larger. And you'd suddenly go into this larger movement after you had been involved in some small, tiny group. And now I think it's exactly the opposite. You find paganism on the web. You find it because you've heard of a festival. You've read a bunch of books and you go to some kind of, there's a cross-traditional federation like the Covenant of the Goddess or Circle or something like this, and you find this group. And then later you suddenly say, I want more, and so then you find the smaller mystery group, or the, the coven, or the grove, or the kindred, if you're involved in Norse paganism. So you go; it's it's almost the opposite route. Whereas before it was from the smaller to the larger, now I think it's from the larger to the smaller, more intense, and that's changed the way the whole movement works.
0: In, well, it, it, in a way, other than what you've already said.
1: Well, I think that um, it has both its good and bad parts. First of all, I think one of the bad parts is that it used to be that when you learned how, when you learned the craft, when you learned Wicca, when you learned whatever, when you learned Druidism, whatever, you know, you learned it personally. Mm-hmm. You learned it from a teacher, from an elder, mm-hmm. and um, and now, of course, there's much less of that because so many people are just taking it from the internet. They've never experienced what it is like to have a real teacher. And right now we're experiencing, right now at this very instant, in the pagan and Wiccan and goddess movement, we are watching the death of an enormous number of elders. I went to two memorial services this weekend, one of them for Isaac Bonowitz, Who was an incredible druid and lecturer, and the author of Real Magic? One of them, Alexei Kondratiev, an incredible Celtic scholar. that Lana Bujin died. You know, um, uh, she was one of the founders of Farafaria, along with Fred Adams, who also died earlier a couple of years ago. Harold Moss, the head of the uh, Church of the Eternal Source, the Egyptian group, died this year. Marion Weinstein died a year ago, July. I mean, there has been a huge, 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 huge ending and death and passing of this huge of, of many of the people that I wrote about in the seventies. And so now we're going to have a whole new generation, hopefully, that's going to do fabulous things. There are all kinds of young people who are doing fabulous things. But I think we are seeing the
0: passing of an entire generation of elders. And do you think this passing may result in... Um, a, dil- a dilution, so to speak, um, I mean, or do you think that the people uh, that the- these folks who have passed away, who they passed the torch to, uh, perhaps you know they're second in you know second in command or something will pick well, up? the torch I don't
1: know I really think we don't know, and I think there are other changes that we have to think about that happened in the last 15 years that are really important to talk about. Let's take something that must be dearest to your heart. let's take the feminist. Spirituality goddess movement. Okay. When I was <clears throat> originally researching this book, when I was researching the revised edition in eighty six, when I was looking around, there were women's festivals all over. I'm not just talking about Michigan and the National Women's Music Festival. There were and, and woman gathering, which still exists, these still, but there were women's festivals all over the place. There were women's oriented radio shows all the Over the country, there were, I mean, I could probably think of 50 of them that I knew. There were feminist bookstores everywhere. Most of those are gone. There is a huge change that's happened. I think a lot of the vibrancy, um, part of that vibrancy, it's true, was very separatist. Um, A lot of that is gone. And one of the things that I did when I wrote the revival, uh, when I wrote the most recent edition of Drawing Down the Moon, is I went back to all the very powerful women priestesses that I had interviewed in 86, and uh, including Morgan McFarland in Texas, Z Budapest. Uh, I interviewed um, Sally Gerhardt, who wrote The Wanderground*. I interviewed all, and, you know, and I went to them and said, What's happening? What do you think is happening? And Z was basically said, Oh, it's all wonderful. I have seven priestesses that I've created. Everything's going great. But everyone else, said things are not good sally gerhardt basically said well you know i'm not separatist anymore i'm working with men and most of my ideas have been taken up in the queer movement and in the environmental movement but she didn't really say much about mm-hmm. what was happening to women and the women's you know except for that yeah. morgan mcfarland said i we have birthed some very conservative priestesses. I don't know how we were such rebels, and half my priestesses just want to do it by the book. I don't know what to do. They've lost their creativity. So I mean, and, and then um, the the woman who Willow Lamont, who uh, has had that what has that wonderful magazine Goddessing, right. she wrote. You know, a lot of things are are dying. I just can't find the radio shows are gone, and the the music is not as much, and a lot of that has gone. Meanwhile, in the gay men's paganism, there's been actually quite a bit of flowering. When I was writing my book in 86, it was mostly, uh, there was the gay fairy movement, there was the Minoan order, that was about it. I went to Garandu, Michael Lloyd, and um, you know, I said, you know, help me, I only have a few months to do this, and he gave me 10 different gay pagan male groups, all of, some of which had were basically groups that followed a particular deity. Um, and there seemed to be uh, actual flowering and more creativity in the men's movement than there had been in the past. So those are some changes that I've been seeing. Uh, in the Norse paganism, one of the big changes is the, the, uh, the use of trance, the use of oracular saves, the fact that we now have within um, Norse paganism all kinds of people doing
0: oracular work. Wow, pretty interesting, pretty darn interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I I, well, you know, I'm listening to what you're saying, and and I, for instance, Willow Lamont, um, I you know definitely lamented the uh, the going away of her wonderful, incredible magazine, magazine. unbelievable magazine. Right, right. She has really just sort of fallen off the grid, and Mm -hmm. uh, well, and I and part of the problem there was she never wanted to move the magazine. Um, you know, into the digital age. She was right. still, you know, mocking it up and that sort of thing. And it's, it's such a shame she didn't take on uh, a protege or an apprentice uh, who could have carried that wonderful work on because she provided this right. wonderful platform. And it was international
1: in a way that none of the other
0: journals were. Absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt. Well, um, so if you hit a crystal ball, <laughs> um, do you, you you know do you think this is? Uh, it sounds like you think this is for the worse,
1: or, well, I don't or are you up worse. No, I don't no? think it's
0: for the worse. I do. I, I am only
1: worried that the spirit of rebelliousness, the the critique of patriarchy, the 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 spirit of rebelliousness is going to be slightly lost as we become more mainstream. I think I that's think. my only worry. Otherwise, I think it's kind of great that people aren't only asking about us on Halloween, that, um, that we actually have charities, that we actually can have a hundred pray- pagan pride you know, celebrations that we have. I think all of that is fabulous. The fact well, that we are actually taken seriously, yes.
0: Well, and we can also be on um, television series, and people don't think twice about it. You know, like That's right. uh, I, I'm trying to remember what was it with um, oh, the three girls.
1: Oh, um, oh, 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 oh.
0: <laughs> I can't remember I mean, it either. It's, it's off close. the air now. But um, well, but but let me ask you this because this is something I always lament, and I don't know if it's always been this way, and I'm curious. Um, you know, whenever we give a big event, say a Pagan Pride Day or something, or we, you know, we're going to do a weekend workshop. Um, uh, do you, did you find in the past what I tend to find is that you'll have a hundred people sign up for a workshop on uh, Pagan sex magic or how to, you know, bring uh, prosperity into your life, and you'll maybe have five that'll show up for goddess herstory, or. Uh, the you know the politics of spirituality has it always been that way? Well, I think that I think that it's been a struggle
1: to. Uh, boy, I don't know where to even go with this, but I, I will say this: I've always found that the occult and magical aspects of all of this are the least interesting. So I've kind of not you know thought that much about them because I just I don't find. I don't find spells that interesting. I don't find, you know, all the kind of magic aspects. I don't find that nearly as interesting as the religion, the ecological, the goddess-oriented, the philosophical aspects of all of this. I find them much more interesting. And I have actually not experienced – I've seen a lot of people at a lot of interesting uh, workshops on things like ritual on things, uh, uh, chanting, on things like um, working. Um, I, I, Ron Hutton came to, I, I saw him give a thing on, uh, on Pan and on Crowley and on stuff like that, and it was packed, and he did a brilliant job. Um, I saw Max Dashu give a fabulous lecture on goddess stuff, and it was pretty packed. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had quite that kind of feeling, but I do think, there are people in our movement who are in there just because of the occult aspects. And right. I, I personally don't think they're as interesting. That's just me, you know. <laughs> well, and, I, and I do think it's been a struggle, but I think it's a struggle we're winning to basically pull the entire movement into ecological activism. I think that really has changed. When I first wrote Drawing Down the Moon, most people were not, you know, we, we, we talked a little line about being an ecological religion and the, being the spiritual arm of the environmental movement and so forth, but we weren't really there. And I think we're much more
0: there now than
1: we were, you know, 10, 15 years ago.
0: Okay, well, um, I want to save the vampire stuff for last. Um, so, what, what I'd like to talk to you about now is you're right there at uh, in, in New York, right in the middle of the Ground, ground Zero mosque controversy. Uh, so, this is a two-prong question: Has it been difficult for you, being a journalist and being a witch? And how are you perceiving this, um, you know, this this latest uh, religious freedom controversy?
1: Well. Um... Those are two completely different questions because the journalist and a witch is really interesting because I have, I've, had, I've had a history of actually some problems of discrimination as being a journalist and a witch. But that's, you know, after 30 years, you kind of that's kind of lessened. But I actually was passed over for certain positions, host positions and so forth because of my paganism. Um, but I'd say that's, that's less. Now I would say let's get to the ground zero stuff. I think what's really shocking to me is how crazy people are about this, um, and how it's been used politically in um, in the most. Uh, uh, let me see. Let me see if I can say it in a different way. What the media is focusing on is the shouting. Basically, one group saying, "Look, this is a question of religious freedom. Any group can worship and." Uh, et cetera, et cetera, and saying, you know, it's hallowed ground, it's ground zero, you know, people died there, et cetera. Now, what's really weird about it is that the most interesting questions and the most interesting facts aren't coming out in most of the stories at all. First of all, there are two mosques right down there. There was a mosque in the World Trade Center. There were people who prayed in the World Trade Center. There's a mosque that's uh, in that Burlington Coat Factory that's going to be or may be end up being the Islamic Cultural Center. There are people who are praying uh, or doing you know, prayers today. There is a mosque that's four blocks from ground zero. So that's number one. Number two, um, the other thing that's really, really strange is that um, the real issue that no one's talking about is do these people Daisy Khan, and the imam, who's a Sufi, remember, he's a Sufi, he comes from a peace-loving Islamic tradition, do they actually have the wherewithal to bring this about? And in fact, no one knows. You mean money? You mean by wherewithal They have only raised $18,000 so far. Okay. They have not started their fundraising. But the question is not money. The question is the model for this mosque is, the Jewish Community Center on the Upper West Side. That's the model. And I happen to be a member of the JCC because I use their gym. And the real estate guy who bought the Burlington Coat Factory, he thought of that as the model because his kids were swimming there. And Daisy Khan, the wife of the imam, sees that as the model. So the question is, the really interesting question that no one is asking is, but it will be asked in the next days, I think, is if you are going to create a huge cultural center in lower Manhattan that's like the JCC in Upper West Side here, what do you need to do? And it's not just fundraising. It's not just buying a piece of property. It's actually having a plan that's very complex that may go over 10 years. It took 11 years to create the JCC, which involved a $90 million building. It involved having all kinds of discussions from the get-go, transparent discussions with all kinds of different people in the community. So the question is, will those discussions take place? Now today there was a really interesting thing that happened. Forty groups got together, pro-mosque groups, um, and had a news conference today to support the mosque. And they involved everyone from common cause, the New York Civil Liberties Union, rabbis like Art Waskow of, of the Shalom Center, um, you know uh, Donna Schapper of the Judson Church, uh, several imams, all kinds of groups. And that 40 groups started a coalition. They chose a name called New York Families for American Values. And um, they are creating a coalition to basically support the mosque. Um, and they are doing it as a coalition of groups. But so far, until now, there hasn't been really the coming together of various communities to create a large pluralistic institution, which is what is going to have to happen if it's going to happen.
0: And I well, what think you're, uh, well, well, what you're saying, Margo, is this negative publicity is really helping, uh, helping the mosque come to be.
1: It may well be. It may well be, but I think what people have to understand is what they're seeing on the outskirts are these warring politicians, you know, the various news channels, the various things saying, we can't have it, we can't. But underneath is, and, and that's kind of, it's going to come tomorrow, it's going to be terrorists, it's going to be this. But the other thing is, this might take 10 years. And it might take all kinds of complicated struggles that no one really is talking about. And those things are beginning now. And in some ways, they're much more interesting than the struggle that we're watching in the newspapers.
0: Well, do you think the fact that the the, uh, the important and interesting questions aren't being asked is a symptom of sort of the demise of real journalism? Well, I think that's part of it, sure. That's part
1: of it. I mean, it is also true that Ground Zero just brings up all kinds of stuff. And you can forget. It's very easy to forget. So you'll have 9-11 families saying, well, we can't have this. This is hallowed ground. And then you'll have an Islamic woman saying, I lost my son in the towers, right? And she said, I'm an American, too. There were Muslims who died in the towers. So you have that discussion going on at the same time that you have all these other discussions. I think the most interesting thing you can say is, It's happening, this discussion, which is really exciting.
0: Well, maybe you can answer this for me because this has me confused. They're calling this hallowed ground, okay, and it's like four blocks away. Two and a half blocks away. Two and a half blocks away. So it's not Yeah, And and the funny thing
1: is there actually was a recent um, article in a local paper, uh, uh, you know, one of the freebie papers, the Metro, which comes out in many cities, and they showed – all the things that were on this block. And there's like an OTB thing and a strip club. And there's like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of non-hollowed non-hallowed ground. But what Donna Shepard said today at this news conference, which I thought was very interesting, she said, hollowed ground is something we talk about when there's a tragedy, when people die. But hollowed ground is also something that means continuing to live for certain values etc., and so she was pretty powerful about how hallowed ground can mean so many
0: different things, and it can also mean fighting for religious freedom. Right. Well, and I'm wondering, you know, are they saying that this mosque two and a half blocks away from ground zero is hallowed ground because it's so close, or are they given like a circumference of, you know, how many blocks beyond? Well, there's an interesting question of how close is too
1: close, and there actually someone else I know is doing a piece about that. But I think that... Um, The thing to also remember is if you understand that the model is the Jewish Community Center, uh, you have to understand that the prayer space in this is going to be one floor out of 15. And what's going to be here? It's going to be strollers and kids and a pool and a gym and probably a nursery school and lectures. and You know what I mean? Exercise classes. So, I mean, we're we're talking about a cultural center. We're not talking about a mosque.
0: Well, and I have a feeling that politicians really know that, but they're just using this as some another divisive wedge issue.
1: Exactly. I think that's probably very true.
0: Well, um, before we move on to the vampires, <laughs> what I know a lot of listeners, uh, you know, had been emailing. I have a lot we... to say about it. <laughs> Is there any more we need to say about uh, Ground Zero? Are or, or you as a journalist or anything you would like to impart to listeners?
1: Not really.
0: I think that
1: um, the one thing I would say is that all of us who were there at that time and in the months that followed, we breathed those creatures. You know, we breathed them. They're part of us. All of those people, we breathed
0: them in, and they'll always be a part of us. And I don't know if you want to comment on this or not. Feel free if it's awkward because, I mean, I know you're in the industry. Um, any thought? I, I mean, I I have been thinking about this a lot lately, and, you know, maybe you can tell me I'm, I'm you know, paranoid and overreacting. And if you think that, you can say so, and I won't be mad. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I just think sometimes that we're going to look back on this time in our history and the influence that Fox News is having on people, uh, whether it be their lies or their propaganda or their creation of issues where there are no issues. And, you know, I, I don't know whether it's, you know, we can think, the, you, know, the lose, you know, the fairness doctrine, you know, losing that or what it is, but it seems like they are way too influential, and they, they seem to be becoming a very evil, divisive, Uh, part of the media. And I guess I just worry about that and wonder if there's anything anybody will ever do about it.
1: Well, I think at the same time that you are feeling this, I at the same time look at MSNBC, for example, and I think to myself, if my mother and my father were alive today, they would look at Rachel Maddow and they would cry. Why? because they would say I never knew that anybody was on television that mirrored my own views. Because oh, you... in their life in the fifties and the sixties, no one did. They were they looked at the news, even Cronkite, and it was an alien view compared to their own views. Ah. So that on the one hand it is true that we are much more fragmented and there's some real issues about us only listening to ourselves and only watching the views we want. So if we're conservative, we're only watching Fox, and if we're left, we're only watching MSNBC and so forth and so on. But it is also true that there's a much wider variety of views that are available to people if they, in fact, are wise enough to use it. Um, And I personally think that the best news
0: that's going on anywhere is John Stewart. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, he just, well, you probably saw he just did that wonderful piece on uh, the, the Saudi sheikh's involvement. You know, they were fo- the follow the money idea. Mm-hmm. You know, that was hysterical. Well,
1: he's been pretty. Uh... He's been on the edge lately. He's some of his stuff on immigration,
0: unbelievable. He's the best. Well, but but just one last thing on that, and then we'll move on. But Walter Cronkite, I mean, it wasn't this divisive hate mongering. And I don't know. Maybe I'm just remembering it wrong because I was just a child Well, then, it wasn't. I mean, he you know it lied, wasn't,
1: True. It was. Know? It was. It was very much more even handed. But ah, uh, he was very late to come to criticize the Vietnam War and speaking as someone who was very involved in those times uh we looked at him as very very different from us
0: okay all right um, all right. Well, let me uh, ask you. You, uh, when we were talking about uh, our vampire subject, you said um, you don't think the people that are reading the vampire novels, and you said you've you've read like a hundred and eight in the last fourteen months. Hundred and
1: ten. Oh, it's up to a hundred and ten <laughs> in fifteen months. Yes. All
0: right. I want to find out why, and I want to know what your phrase meant—that the the people who are reading the books don't understand what's going on in *The Twilight*. I found that provocative. Is is that this feminism environmental thrust? or Well, I think that
1: actually a lot is going on in that. Let me, let me, let's go back. Um, first of all, I should say that one of the reasons that I did this is because my husband died, and he was sick with cancer, and during that period I ended up needing an escape. And somehow or another, I guess I started by meditating on mortality. Um, I basically started reading these novels. Um, Twilight, I think, I'll start with Twilight, but then I'll say what I think is most important, which is not Twilight. Um, Twilight is interesting because, first of all, there's a lot of stuff going on there that people don't realize about identity. Um, she very much, Bella, is an only child from a divorced home, very much like I was, and she is seeing a richer, deeper family possibility in an extent, two different extended families, all of different classes. She's middle, middle classer father's a cop, you know, um, uh, Jacob is definitely working class, Edward Cullen definitely upper class, um, and uh, I think that she is seeking her own identity in a very deep way, and even at the end of Eclipse, at the end of the movie, it's very interesting that she ends up saying to Edward, you think this is about you, it's not about you, it's about me, it's about finding where I, sort of where I belong, what my identity is. So I think a lot of what's going on in Twilight is much more than just love and sex. It's really about a kind of teenagers coming to who are they as far as their identity. What I think is going on in a larger sense in the vampire situation, and what's really interesting is this, that uh, all the modern vampires, the ones of the last ten years, Edward Cullen in Twilight, Stefan and the Vampire Diaries, uh, certainly Bill Bill Lecompton in True Blood, Mick St. John in in the failed CBS wonderful series Moonlight, Henry Fitzroy in the Tanya Huff novels, which became a lifetime series, and lastly, Being Human, the new BBC uh, series that is on right now. All of those vampires are struggling desperately to be moral, despite being predators all of them. They're not like the vampires of Anne Rice and Whitley Strieber and a lot of people before. They are all struggling desperately to be moral, to be human in some way despite being predators. And who are we right now as we wage new wars, as oil is our blood, as we suck the lifeblood out of the planet? We are struggling desperately to be moral despite being predators. So I think they are a metaphor for us. Whitley Strieber says our prey is the planet. They are a metaphor for us in this time, and the real struggle is how we use and how we abuse power. And so it's much more a meditation on power and than it is a meditation on blood and sex, despite all the blood and sex that we're seeing around. One of the things that I think um, a, a friend of mine, Amy Smith, who teaches at the University of the Pacific and teaches a lot of vampire film and uh, literature courses, she says, the question that all of these vampire novels are asking is, does might make right? If you have more power, if you have more money than someone else, how do you act? If you have more power than somebody else, how do you act? All these vampire novels and films ask the question, are you someone who says, these people are cattle, I can do what I want, or I was once human, I have to treat them with respect? does might make right so it is essentially the question that we as an empire are asking it's a question that we are asking politically i think that these novels and films have traction right now because they are essentially asking the deepest political and philosophical questions that we as a society need to
0: ask at this moment hmm. you know that's, that's an interesting parallel it makes total sense to me Uh, And when you think about, I, I mean, I'm going back to Anne Rice because I sort of grew up on those those right. novels. You know, she had Lestat, who was right. the one who really didn't have much of a conscious, but then she had Louis, the one who just lamented being what he was. You know, he mm-hmm. probably fits more in line with, uh, you know, Bill the Bill right. He's more yeah, like the one. Bill Compton type. <laughs> right, right. Exactly, exactly. Well, I really like that idea. I really do. I think that makes total sense.
1: Well, I'm trying to write. I have a book proposal. I'm circulating around about it, but it's you know, it's hard in this age to we'll see if it's it
2: another
0: vampire story. But you know what? This 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 is really relevant and um and I, I don't think I will ever look at these shows uh <laughs> the same you know, now that I've I've heard your uh your theory on it, because I I think you might be absolutely right. Either that or you're giving the writers way too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> well besides uh besides you know this uh proposal you're shopping around what what else is sort of you know tickling your fancy or or has you know stoking your passions these days margo what what are you working on
1: Oh well, I'm you know trying to live a life you know <laughs> I have a son who's nineteen I'm dealing with that um i'm um i don't know i mean i'm kind of you know I'm in a transition because I'm going through. You know, I'm 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 alone for the first time in 35 years, except for my son. I'm another thing that I oh I'll tell you one thing that I'm that's interesting. Um, I am, you know, I'm the I'm the granddaughter of Alfred Adler, the the psychiatrist who invented the inferiority complex, and I joke gave it to everybody, all his relatives. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but. Um, but um, actually, he died in 1937, so I never met him. But his ashes were in Aberdeen, Scotland, where he had a heart attack, and they're probably going to be moved back to Vienna, where he was born. And there's going to be a ceremony, and I'm probably going to go to Vienna. And so there's some there's some Adlerian stuff I'm getting involved in as well.
0: Okay. Well, are you, are you uh, doing you know much in the way of the craft these days? I mean, well, are you... I just. <laughs> I'm
1: sort of it's unclear exactly what's happening, but I just went through a big ceremony actually. Um it's a complicated ceremony within the in which a sort of a sort of elder queening kind of ceremony that was very exciting and um and so that sort of happened and um so I don't know exactly where that's going. Um okay. What do,
0: you, what do you do to pay the bills? Are you, are you a, journalist? Is am, a journalist? I am
1: a full-time NPR correspondent. Okay, and do you cover a particular beat? Or? Well, I'm one of the only people in New York. Um, we have a very small bureau in New York for the national shows. So, for example, in the last couple of weeks, I did the Pakistani community in regard to aid and what was happening as far as the floods uh, I'm working on this Ground Zero thing. I did a fabulous, fabulous, fun, fun, fun piece about Camp Half Blood. Have you heard about this? No. Um, you know the Percy Jackson novels, which have yeah. sold 15 yeah. million copies, like The Lightning Thief. Well, a lot of independent bookstores have gotten together, and they have a lot of independent bookstores have set up camps, day camps based on the Percy Jackson. They're kind of Camp Half Blood. And you the kids come in the camp, so I visited this one camp in Brooklyn in Prospect Park where the kids come in and the oracle tells them who their parent god is and then they go on quests all week and they <laughs> learn sword play with sort of, you know, um, and they do all these other things, and it's all based on the Percy Jackson novel.
0: What fun. It That's was
1: really fun. I, I wanted to be a kid again. It was really, really fun.
0: Shoot, I'm seeing priestesses doing that for a weekend retreat. What are you talking about? <laughs> 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 so, um, so, let, so tell us a little bit about your other book, Heretic's Heart. Well, Heretic's Heart is a
1: book about it's, well, it's I call it a 60s memoir, but it actually starts in the 50s and ends in the early 70s. But, of course, as we all know, the 60s started in 64 and ended in 73. But it's basically a very personal memoir. It basically talks about, I, I spent... A lot of time in the political, the most political. I have a chapter called "A Left Wing Nun in the Summer of Love," which is a pretty funny chapter. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I was a voter registration worker in Mississippi. I was arrested in the free speech movement in 1964. I went to Cuba and cut cane with the Vence Ramos Brigade. I did all kinds of. Ins- I was in Chicago in '68. I mean, I, you know, I did a lot of really wild things and. So it's basically sort of the story of growing up in the 50s in the Cold War, um, sort of becoming this sort of radical and then moving toward uh, a more spiritual, um, you know, it's going from sort of that, sort of that interface between spirit and revolution.
0: Well, I think you know from listening to what your life has been like. I think it would put that new movie with Julia Roberts—what is it? Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, right. <laughs> I, think it, I think that would pay, that pales uh, in comparison to your life. <laughs> well,
1: well, you know the other part of that book. Uh, actually, I should say that three chapters of that book. There are three chapters that they should make a movie of, but it's not the three chapters I was telling you about. It's I um, when I was a Berkeley student, I. Um, I ended up in a correspondence through the mail and fell in love with a Vietnam soldier while oh. I was a Berkeley anti-war demonstrator. So there are three chapters of our letters. Oh, it wow. Pretty was pretty amazing. And I'm still in touch with him. He's
0: still alive. He lives in Minnesota, and uh, I'm still uh, in touch. So are both of your books, uh, "Drawing Down the Moon" and "Heretic's Heart," are they both still in print uh, yes, and available yes.
1: for? Uh, they are for... both available. Yes, you can go on Amazon or wherever and uh, and get them.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, um, would you you know would you like to leave listeners with with any words of wisdom or uh, any ideas we haven't discussed that you think um, might be important to mention? Well, I think that the only thing I guess I would say is that. Um...
1: The thing that's really powerful i think about the pagan movement is that we all if we go far enough back all of us came from pagan a pagan world if we were african american our traditions were stolen from us through slavery if we were native american they were stolen through us from us through colonialism and if we were basic white Westerners, most of our great-great-great-grandparents threw away the songs, the stories, the lullabies as they assimilated into this culture. So all of us, no matter what our background, have sort of been rooting around in the ashes for what we might call vibrant, ecstatic, deep, wonderful traditions, a way to figure out a way to live both with integrity in the modern world but also to have some of that juice and mystery that ancient traditions had. And I think the real task that the pagan movement has been trying to do for years and years and years and decades and decades is to figure out how can we have both of those things? How can we live as modern people who get up in the morning and you know have jobs as computer programmers and doctors and lawyers and everything and still be able to dance around a bonfire at night? and have dreams and have ecstatic feelings and sing until we're just completely ecstatic. And I think that the pagan movement is one of those attempts to try and figure that out, to figure out the balance, to figure out the beauty, the
0: imagination, and the balance of that. Mm, that, That's well said. And it it seems like that's almost another way to say that is, you know, when we talk about uh, trying to find, you know, the balance of the masculine and feminine within ourselves. You know, uh, uh-huh. certainly a worthwhile task um, that's, that sounds like a life a lot of us, I'm sure, would want to live.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Well, Margo, thank you so very much uh, for being on the show. Uh, if if uh, my listeners would uh, like to sort of follow what you're doing, uh, either with NPR or your priestess work, uh, what's what's the best way for them to know what you're up to? Well, there are a number of ways. You
1: can see all my NPR pieces by just putting in my name and whatever at npr.org. Um, you can, uh, if you send me a really interesting message on Facebook, I will friend you, but only by doing that. Uh, <laughs> I also have a fan page on Facebook. I also have someone, uh, some fan also put up a website, margoadler.com, which just has my books on it and a couple of other things. It's not really a fabulous website, but it's there. Uh, and uh, those are
0: some of the ways uh, you can can find me. Okay. Well, thank you so very much for lending your voice to uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us tonight and telling us, you know, how it used to be and how it is now, and, you know, we can only wait and see how it's going to be tomorrow. (laughs) But uh, thank you so very much. Oh,
1: you're most welcome. I had a great time. Good night. Good
0: night. Well, if you're just uh, tuning in, this is Karen Tate, hostess of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, where we discuss goddess, the divine feminine, and the resurging interest in right-brain thinking and the feminine consciousness. And as I always say, whether the great she be deity, archetype, or ideal, uh, we talk about how these new values and benchmarks just might save the world. And you've been listening to Foremother, journalist, lecturer, wiccan priestess, correspondent for NPR, author of Drawing Down the Moon, uh, Margot Adler. I'm sure you enjoyed her as much as I did. So... Well, I think you remember that sound, probably. I hope so. I know it's been a few weeks, but that's the sound for What's the Buzz. Uh, It marks our crossing the threshold into our What's the Buzz segment. And tonight, um, I'm going to share with you uh, my new article on the Examiner column that I just posted. And I also want to share something that uh, Mama Donna Hennis wrote um, to help us get through uh, this Mercury retrograde. I know uh, a lot of us you know, kind of fear this Mercury retrograde. We're afraid that our life is going to just turn into chaos. But it doesn't have to be that way. So first, let's start with that. Uh, Donna Henness, or Mama Donna, as some of us call her, she's uh, been interviewed here uh, on Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and she has a book out uh, on... Um, uh, the title is Escaping Me, but it's about women reclaiming the queen phase of their life. Uh, I think it might actually be The Queen of Your Life might be the title of the book. I Forgive me, Donna, if um, I, I, I should have looked that up before I started talking about it, but um, certainly our listeners probably either know you uh, or can certainly find you. Uh, she writes for the Huffington Post, and um, uh, she has given us some advice uh, on how to handle this Mercury retrograde, which we entered into on Friday. And uh, I'm going to just read some snippets. Uh, she says, Mercury, the planet of communication, enters its." thrice-a-year retrograde stage on August 20th and will remain in a backward momentum until September 12th. Uh, Mercury retrograde has a very bad rap. She says she should know as a Virgo, uh, which is ruled by Mercury. She says she's usually affected quite profoundly, but over the years she's learned a thing or two about how to survive in one piece and how to use this potentially frustrating phase in a fruitful manner. She says when Mercury is moving direct, our minds tend to work on a functional, form forward level, our actions match our intentions, our energy is invested, and more assertive decision-making and action with less emphasis on retrospection and reflection. However, we're constantly picking up on unconscious intuitive information, which will surface if we let it, during this retrograde cycle, and this is a good thing. We need a time to rest and assimilate all the information we're bombarded with. And it's a time for our inner wisdom to manifest and guide us to reorganize, rethink, reevaluate, redo, reboot. It's a crucial and healthy part of the organic, natural flow of life. Uh, she says our clock and dollar orientation, uh, or, or we call that the real world, is comprised of schedules, deadlines, to-do lists, which don't accommodate a cycle of introspective reflection and re-evaluation. Uh, this is why this period can be so brutal for some of us, especially those of us with determined, steely goals and agendas. Mercury, as most of us know, tends to play havoc with the smooth functioning of the technology upon which we depend for our achievements and communication. It also tends to mix up face-to-face communications and the best laid plans of women and men the results are interruptions snafus misunderstandings and mix-ups which interfere with the simplest of projects so she says during mercury retrograde we need to uh, we need more caution more care and a pinch more elbow grease to get things done. It's not a good time to launch or initiate new projects because in trying to do so, uh, we will be pushing off symbolically just when the tide is going out and it will be more of a struggle to make headway with our plans. It's far better to wait until the current is moving with us. The degree to which we hold on to our need to keep to our schedules, agendas, and plans often equates to the degree in which we find ourselves going bonkers during this time. When we doggedly hold on to our logical, rational structures, we court the tricksters, elements of Mercury, which will fool and frustrate us to no end. Now is the time we must surrender our forward-leaning push and embrace the lessons of letting go. We must not underestimate the degree to which our psyche can resist change. The abdication of our will or ego to a deeper function of consciousness can be quite a challenge as the retrograde cycle continues, but there is great reward if we manage to do so. She says this is a period, uh, a great time to clear our minds, to go back and complete unfinished projects, to work on reconciling. Issues, to tune into our dreams and unconscious thoughts, to listen to our inner wisdom, to open new ways of thinking and perceiving. But like she said, not start new projects. So, in conclusion, rather than pushing against the cosmic current, let's take a three-week break from our hectic breakneck speedy ways and allow ourselves to slow down, to sum it up and sort out the past, to be in the moment and to savor the now. You can follow uh, Mama Donna, Donna Hens, um, and everything she writes at the Huffington Post. You can go there. Uh, She's also on Twitter Twitter, as uh, Queen Mama Donna. So I invite you to uh, take a look at her work. She is an urban shaman, an echo ceremonialist, and a ritual expert. Uh, Nice woman. I really enjoyed her when uh, she was here on the show. Well, let's see. What else are we going to talk about? Um, Well, I think I would like to uh, share with you My Examiner column that I just posted, uh, Reconciling Our Spirituality with Our Politics. You know, I've been, um, I wrestled for some time with whether to write this article and print it publicly. Uh, I almost wrote it when Sarah Palin hit the national stage and we learned her church deemed the Queen of Heaven, which is the goddess, a demon, uh, which pitted evangelicals uh, against goddess revering folk. I almost wrote it again when there was such a humbug on a previously friendly pagan and progressive Christian listserv I belong to uh, that suddenly in the climate of Palin, the listserv became very anti-woman's rights and very anti-pagan. I almost um, you know, put these ideas to paper again uh, when pagans on another listserv uh, belonged to were more worried about what color candle to use on their altar in their rituals than share political ideas that might advance our spirituality. Um, even when you know, some people asked, why should they care if the Bible gives men and religions license to oppress women? Okay, can you hear me slap hand to forehead? (laughs) I guess I can say, um, you know, I was steadily getting filled up to my eyeballs with apathy, ignorance, intolerance, oppression. Then comes along on the scene the teabaggers, who don't even know their movement is funded by corporations. And more recently, this ginned-up controversy of the Ground Zero Mosque. And now today uh, I read on the Internet that uh, a cab driver got stabbed, presumably for being a Muslim. They're looking into that right now. Um, And just last night, uh, I think it was in Kentucky. I mean, how long was it going to be before we heard this, that a Muslim group was denied the use of a space they were going to use to hold religious services, and the county uh, used the excuse that there wasn't enough parking when, you know, that issue hadn't come up before, but suddenly since the Ground Zero mosque stuff is in the news, now suddenly it seems they can't um, uh, use the space. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, thinly veiled bigotry and discrimination. So um, in the article I reminded uh, my readers that elders and spiritual leaders from all walks of life have been telling us we're teetering on the edge of a knife and with the right push we're going to fall one way or another considering that uh i wrote the article because i don't want to be complicit by my silence with those others who choose to stand mute if by speaking out i can perhaps be that metaphoric uh, hundredth monkey to help stem the tide from tipping toward more oppression inequality war intolerance hate then darn it let me try you know um you don't have to agree with me, but this is, this is what I think, and I'm going to put it out there. I, I don't want to be silenced. And particularly as a pagan, a member of a fast-growing spirituality, perceived uh, you know, to be in the religious minority in this country, even though that might not quite be accurate in lots of places anymore, uh, with paganism having a history of being oppressed by Christian zealots, I would think other pagans would be concerned enough to speak out to, I mean, can you just imagine the anti pagan hate that would be conjured up by the right conser- you know the right or conservatives uh, Christians if at some time in the near future some disturbed pagan commits some crime uh, in this religiously intolerant climate? you know we already have to suffer the discrimination of tier one versus tier two religions, and if you don 't know what i 'm talking about by that, you can the past article I wrote here in the examiner column Uh, because pagans are not on tier one you know they don't have the same uh, you know religious uh, constitutional protections as Christianity Judaism and Islam Um, so you know that's something to be aware of and you know I, I just don't want to be one of the people, people quietly lurking in the shadows and let the hate mongers set the tone. Uh, it just felt like to me the escalating lies and hate so propaganda, you know they just pushed me over the edge. My hair felt like it was on fire metaphorically, of course. And the only way to put it out was just to let loose my sacred roar. So I put this um, you know this column on the examiner. So agree with me or not, here goes. I'm starting off with the statement. Might ruffle some feathers, but it'll just have to. Goddess is a Democrat. Goddess is a Democrat. Goddess is a Democrat. You know, I'm not alone in my views. Rheann Eisler has been on my radio show and said it, so has Starhawk. Uh, if Goddess had to choose between the current two major political parties, she would choose voting for Democrats others have alluded to it if not come right out and shouted it indeed or voice pagans should not vote for republicans if our country our world is to move forward it has to break the shackles of war for economic gain of ignorance racism bigotry homophobia plutocracy which is ruled by the rich exploitation and sexism we have to start caring if everyone's boat floats not just the boat that rich, white, conservative men and women book passage on. And I am a white woman, okay? I'm just being fair here. We have to worry about the many and not the few, That means reconciling your spirituality with your politics. That means if you're a goddess advocate, an environmentalist, a feminist, if you want a caring culture, a culture free of war, and one of advancement and enlightenment, a society who values science as well as spiritual freedom, where people aren't constantly being duped to vote against their economic interests or their rights taken away to satisfy religious dogma, then you must... Logically, this is just logically, cast your vote for Democrats. It is really very simple. No, the Democrats aren't perfect. I am not happy with Obama. Far from it. I wanted a lot more to happen than has happened. I really don't like the blue dog. Faux Democrats. Okay, I'm not uh, happy that more sweeping change I hoped for and voted for has not come yet. But you know what? We can't dig ourselves out of a catastrophic catastrophic hole. These circumstances we find ourselves in overnight or in 18 months, especially. In the face of such overwhelming obstructionism, lies, and propaganda that work against the Democrats, like Rush Limbaugh, like Laura Schlesinger, like Sarah Palin, like Rush, uh, you know, any, any of those, okay? And as reasonable citizens, you know, you don't throw a tantrum and get even for your disappointment and switch sides and vote for the people most responsible for causing the cataclysm. You know, people will tell me, I'm not a Democrat or Republican, I'm an independent. Well, and I say, well, great, but given that we usually only have two choices we, you know, in our political system, you usually have to choose either don't vote or vote Republican or vote Democrat. Well, I'm here to say, in my opinion, from what I have seen, you know, from their own mouths, from their own actions, today's religious uh, Republican leaders are a dangerous bunch. They're either... Uh, lack compassion uh, or ignorant and intolerant with no sense of uh, economics. Or uh, or a sense of history, or they're hypocrites and liars who care little for you and me and care everything for the richest two percent of the country and people making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more, which is them. Okay, they're millionaires. They are that most of them are millionaires in Congress. All right, and then there's the issue of social justice. If there is to be social justice in this country, it will not be promoted by Republicans. This is the party that let people die in the Superdome during Hurricane Katrina. This is the party that belongs to Fox News and vice versa you know I can't tell anymore which is the dog and which is the tail wagging it uh President George Bush broke the sacred oath of trust as the commander-in-chief with our armed forces and sent poor and middle-class men and women into a bogus war, and for what many say, that just padded the pockets of the military industrial complex and oil companies. He's been caught on tape saying the way to revive an economy is war. Well, it's not him and his friends' kids that are going to war. It's your neighbors and mine that are going to go to war, Okay. George Bush and his cronies gave this country a black eye around the world, making us less safe, and his party is doing it again now with this ground zero mosque issue. The GOP says they want to distance themselves from Bush, but you know what? They don't have any new answers, but the Bush policies, the Bush policies are in their blood. It is simply who they all are. But in fairness, okay, I should say probably not all conservative Republicans are of this ilk that I'm talking about. But if there are any Republicans wearing white hats out there, where are they? okay why are they sitting back silent they are letting the crazies run the party figuring you know they're gonna you know conjure up votes uh no matter how they do it and at the end justifies the means you know integrity honesty be damned it just doesn't matter their silence leave people like me thinking when you do find homophobes racists those who would dumb down americans to steal their vote those who would take reproductive rights away from women those employing fear to control others whether they're scaring white people about those different from them scaring people about terrorists the french for heaven's sake or people of different religions they will more than likely be republicans they are the ones that would balance the budget on the backs of the poor by taking away medicaid and social security or privatize it so their rich cronies can find a loophole to steal your retirement They're quick to say the poor are lazy rather than admit the inequity in our society that holds lots of people back. I've heard some say they think wealth is a gift from God and greed is perfectly okay while believing the flip -flip side of this, which is poverty is a punishment from God for the sins of the poor. Well, how convenient is that theory to justify helping corporations and not people? Yet they are the ones who always vote to defund education. Well, maybe that's because an informed electorate employing critical thinking with a sense of fair play instead of hate and fear and a sense of white entitlement will not vote for the Republican vision of the future. So bottom line, pagan or not, do you want to be responsible for perpetuating the power and ideology of these people, people who are galvanizing a movement like the Tea Partiers based on lies and non-issues used to divide people and make us hate each other? Just think of all the bullshit, excuse me, that has come out of Fox News, the outright lies, okay? I'm not even going to go into it here, but, you know, if you want to email me, I'll give you a list. Perhaps, you know, once there was a time when Republicans could sit down with Democrats and work out some equitable compromise, but... You know, uh, not anymore. The Republicans of today are mean, ignorant, racist, and a homophobic bunch. That's not just my opinion. Just turn on the news. They prove it themselves every day. That it's because who they have speaking for them. They won't approve unemployment benefits for people who lost their job and the economy they helped destroy, but they will twist themselves into a pretzel to try to uh, rationalize or protect big corporations from having to follow safety and environmental regulations and help the rich get richer while the corporate and political vultures pick the meat off the bones of the poor and ever shrinking middle class. The media will not say it's because. It's considered uh, politically incorrect, but, but let's shine the light on this. This is a culture war. Make no mistake. You know, I could cite statistics about how women make 70%, 70 cents on the dollar and most retire in poverty, or how wages of the middle class have been stagnant for years while the richest in the country have gotten more powerful and more and more rich, how CEOs used to make 50 times as much as their employees, and now they make 350 times more than their employers than their employees who are getting less and less in the way of benefits, salary, job security. You know, I could cite how other countries in the Western world take so much better care of their people, but corporate interests have already convinced so many that these issues of social justice reflect that scary word, socialism. Well, you know what? A lot of you people uh, or people who, who believe that, you should really read you know, what kind of benefits people in Scandinavian countries have, people in Canada have, people in Europe have. You know, you'll, you'll be trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, immigrate, trust me. History, truth, and statistics are not on the side of the republicans. So to conclude, if you're a pagan or goddess advocate, you vote for people who promote ideals and laws geared toward ideas that run parallel with your spirituality, ideas that promote the highest good for the many, not the few, the many, that's you and me. As a formerly oppressed religion and an uh, earth-based spirituality, you just automatically, logically should stand for equality. Balance and fairness in our legislation and for environmental and economic stability, not people who work against that. You know, by goddesses, many faces across continents and cultures, I believe goddess spirituality represents diversity. Likewise, I believe pagans should embrace diversity. I, for one, don't want to live in a narrow little conservative box with tight, pointy corners. I want to live in a spacious, rich, and diverse world where there are lots of ingredients in our cultural gumbo. It's really so much more delicious than plain white bread. So please, consider supporting and helping people with ideas that will help us all fall from that tipping point of the knife onto the side of peace, tolerance, equal rights for all, including religious freedom and human rights, which includes a woman's right to choose what she does with her body. No church or state should legislate a woman's reproductive rights lest she is a slave to her body. You push back and speak out against those who throw these ideals under the bus. You use your sacred and divine roar, and you go out and vote and take three people with you because the wolf... The wolf is at the door, and we cannot afford to have this ugly crop of Republicans setting the tone for what this country stands for. We are better than what they stand for. We are better than their ideals, and we need to be raising the bar and setting the tone and values for a better world. It's really just that simple. I'm going to take a 30 second break here. I'm going to let you listen to Jenna Green and a snippet from her song, Acceptance, and I'll come back with the rest of tonight's show. Thank you for staying with me, and I just want to get on to another topic uh, about uh, girls and women who are being uh, sex trafficked. Uh, Here are some statistics. Um, You know, this is not in a faraway place. Uh, This is in New York, Michigan, and uh, Minnesota. I hear the numbers of sex trafficked girls in May 2010 in these three states uh, and the increase over February Um, in New York. Uh, 3,200 girls. In Michigan, 141 girls. In Minnesota, 102 girls. Uh, that's an increase of anywhere from uh, 11 to 27 percent. Uh, that's here in the United States. Um, this comes from an article in Ms. Magazine, uh, Carrie Baker. I think, uh, is the author of the piece. Uh, she says her article, Jailing Girls for Men's Crimes in the Summer Issue of Ms., cited a study revealing that hundreds of girls aged 17 and younger are sold for sex each month in Georgia. Well, the numbers are just in from a study of three other states, uh, New York, Michigan, and Minnesota. Those are the uh, statistics I just uh, uh, read to you, and sponsored by the Women's Funding Network. Uh, the report documents high and increasing rates of commercial sexual exploitation of adolescent girls. The study tracked the sale of girls on the Internet and through escort services, although girls also Uh, or sold on the street and at hotels, and those aren't even uh, covered in these statistics. Uh, The numbers are shocking. To put them in perspective, the study compares the domestic sex trafficking of minors with other social problems such as teen suicide and cutting, uh, which is female genital mutilation, uh, with breast cancer deaths and uh, car accidents, and here are some comparisons. In New York, more girls are commercially sexually exploited in one month, 3,200 than the number of teens who committed suicide or were hospitalized for self-inflicted injury in one year or the number of women of all ages who died of breast cancer in, in a year. In Michigan, more girls are are commercially sexually exploited in one month than there are women and girls under age 25 who were killed in car accidents. In Minnesota, more girls are commercially sexually exploited in one month than there are teens who died of suicide, homicide, and accidents in one year. Other points of note in the study, there's strong evidence that Native American girls are commercially sexually exploited at high rates in Minnesota. And on Super Bowl Sunday 2010, there were 80% more paid sex ads on Craigslist List in new york than on the typical sunday and remember the super bowl was in miami uh, but there's some good news in the study the rate of commercial sexual exploitation of girls in georgia is down from 492 in february to 373 in may that's a 24 percent decrease perhaps all the incredible activism in georgia is paying off um, This study is an important step toward gathering data to build a national picture of the scope of the commercial sexual exploitation of girls in the United States. And uh, we've had uh, Sandy Kirkpatrick on the show before. She works directly with women who have been trafficked. Uh, You know, she talks about, how um, you know women who um, you know are trafficked, especially in you know countries that uh, are at war. For instance, um, Iraqi women uh, have been trafficked into sexual slavery uh, in Jordan and Syria. And the Nation had a magazine uh, article out uh, just this week that. Um, said two months ago the State Department released its uh, 2010 trafficking in persons report laying out a picture of human trafficking across the globe. In it, the United States reaffirmed its commitment to ending this scourge and for the first time included an evaluation of anti-trafficking measures in our own country. Uh, But our duties don't end at our borders. Uh, The article says more than 50,000 Iraqi women in Jordan and Syria are trapped in sexual servitude and have no possibility of escape. The burgeoning sex industry in Syria and Jordan are thriving because of instability produced by the Iraq War, laying responsibility directly at the feet of the United States. Uh, you can read the whole article if you go to the Nation um, it was written by Sebastian Sweat and Cameron Webster, uh, dated August 19th, and the name of the article is "U.S. Dodges Obligation to Help Iraqi Women Trafficked in the Sexual Slavery." Uh, what they're trying to do uh, is uh, make it easier um, for. Uh, women refugees uh, to you know be granted uh, temporary visas uh, you know so that they can work uh, there's much more to the article and um, uh, please take a look at it uh, you know there are solutions to the problem but um, you know we have an obligation to mend the system uh, and remove the shackles that are holding these women down but uh, things just are not uh, you know solutions are there but they're not uh, happening quick enough that's You know, really a sad testament and, uh, you know, another little talked about, um, you know, side effect of, uh, you know, the bogus war that we got involved in. Um, also wonder if you're a True Blood fan, uh, if you're tuned in tonight. Uh, you knew Margot Adler was going to be talking about vampires. Uh, I wanted to bring your attention to the Rolling Stone cover. Uh, they have uh, the two vampires and Sookie Stackhouse on the cover. Uh, all three are unclothed and uh, covered in blood. It says the True Blood casket's sexy and bloody, reminds you of anything. Well, some retailers were so... Um, I don't know, I guess uh, uncomfortable uh, with the cover that they're even refusing to stock the issue. Uh, but um, Stephanie Hallett, who I believe is the, uh, the writer of this article for Ms. Magazine, says uh, she says her first thought on seeing this Rolling Stone cover featuring cast members from the vampire TV show True Blood was I wonder if Anna Paquin had her period when they shot this. Um, Anyway, she goes on to talk about how uh, in our culture um, menstruation is often constructed as a curse and about menstrual taboos and uh, period sex, which is an even bigger taboo uh, than menstruation. Um, and she says the separation between sexuality and menstruation is almost maniacal, uh, though that may be changing. Uh, clinical psychologists argue that the sexualized nature of the vagina contributes to the strength of the menstrual taboo and creates an inherent embarrassment around menstruating and sexual situations. Um, women's sexualized bodies are public; their menstruating bodies are tainted, and never the twain shall meet. Anyway, go to uh, Ms. Magazine and uh, look up the article, True Blood, uh, casket Sexy and Bloody, and follow some of the links in the article. Uh, they take you to an article that says, why, uh, from Jezebel.com, Why Men Should Learn to Like Period Sex. That's real interesting. Also, Menstrual Taboos on uh, Wikipedia. And um, on Springer link, it takes you to uh, notice of this book, um, uh, adolescence, advertising, and the ideology of menstruation. A lot of interesting reading if you're into uh, the psychology of all of this and how we tend to uh, react in this patriarchy that has really sort of turned women's natural body functions on its head and made us feel ashamed uh, and, as if these things um, are, are something that uh, we shouldn't be proud of and they're just a natural uh, phase of our life. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, It's about time to get to announcements. I think that's all of the what's the buzz I'm going to take care of tonight. Uh, But uh, I appreciate you asking about that segment, uh, and as long as you're interested, I think it's important that uh, we continue to have what's the buzz so we can talk about ideals that either – Uh, you know, help perpetuate, uh, you know, ideals of the sacred feminine. So uh, we understand just what are goddess ideals. So, uh, you know, we know which side of the line uh, we stand on, and we're more likely to know when somebody out there uh, is exploiting or, you know, or um, using oppression or, uh, you know, things that would not be considered, um, you know, in good taste if you're a goddess advocate. Well, uh, I just wanted to share some of uh, the upcoming guests uh, that are going to be on Voices of the Sacred Feminine in uh, the next couple weeks. Um, We're going to have on the show Vandana Shiva. Uh, Some of you probably will recognize her name. Uh, She is... uh, a major activist out there. She's the author of Water Wars. She's been the winner of Save the World and the Sydney Peace Prize Awards. Also, Sister Joan Chittister. she's a Benedictine nun uh, who's known for her controversial claims of inequality of women in the church. Uh, there, If I can find it here, there was just a great article uh, that came out that she was mentioned in Uh, Women Take on Gender Apartheid in the Catholic Church. Her, along with uh, others, were mentioned in this article uh, in the Huffington Post, uh, written by Angela uh, Bonavoglia, who is an award-winning journalist and author. Um, This article posted on August 16th. Uh, I'd really recommend you go to it and read it. We might cover it in a future show, but we can't tonight. Uh, But again, it's called Women Take on the Gender Apartheid in the Catholic Church. Um, some of the other upcoming guests are going to be Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Uh, she is the author of many books, including Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype. Uh, we'll have Francesca Gentile on the show. Uh, she's been uh, dubbed the diva of divine relationships. Uh, and we're going to talk about God, Goddess, and Sex uh... we have um, marine biologist and political activist ricky Ott will be on the show she's going to talk about uh... the importance of amending the constitution and abolish corporate personhood uh... which is having a devastating effect on our democracy and she was also right there on site during the exxon valdez oil spill and she has a unique perspective about what's happened um, in the gulf with this uh, bp situation and uh, Jeannie Davis Kimball, uh, founder of the uh, Center for the Study of Eurasian Nomads, author of Warrior Women, an archaeologist's search for hidden... Uh, history's hidden heroines and um she talks about the women who were the warriors uh, who were actually possibly related to who we think of as the amazons so i think you'll enjoy uh, hearing her Uh, i certainly enjoyed reading her book she was one of the uh, folks i used as a reference uh, when i wrote my book sacred places of goddess 108 destinations i actually um uh, cited some of the places uh, in uh, on that borderline between Russia and China where the Mongols live um, as some sacred sites of goddess because of uh, the grave goods that um, uh, Professor uh, Jean Davis Kimball found that showed that uh, these women were more than likely goddess advocates. Really interesting stuff. Um, okay. Um, I mentioned to you earlier that uh, I uh, wrote that uh, article for the Examiner column. I was on hiatus, but uh, I'm back. Uh, So please consider uh, subscribing to it. It's free. And if you subscribe, then I know the articles are of interest and a valuable service to you. Um, I have a number of articles I posted in the last week, including that one uh, that I read you uh, excerpts from about reconciling your spirituality with your politics. Also, if um, you want to say hi to me in person, I am going to be priestessing at the Goddess Temple of Orange County on Sunday, September 12th. Then November 13th, I will be uh, one of the presenters at uh, the Gaia Festival uh... that's going to be in santa barbara and it's a weekend event and uh... the keynote speaker i think this year is catherine Savella. she's a writer scholar and storyteller uh... with a phd in mythological studies and depth psychology from pacifica graduate institute and uh, this is catherine's first appearance at gaia fest and she's brewing up a wonderful workshop called birthing breathing thinking weaving gaia and grandmother spider doesn't that sound like fun and uh, I am given a presentation and slideshow on Sacred Feminine for a Sustainable Future. So for more information, you can go to uh, GaiaFestival.com. Uh, other people um, giving workshops or performing or t- giving talks are Stephen Geringer, Miranda Rondeau with her, her wonderful drumming. And, uh, and other folks, uh, you can get more details again at GaiaFestival.com. There's going to be an eclectic mix of presenters, musicians, artists, healers, vendors, uh, and lots of participants to create a special must attend event. I think this is the third or fourth year of GaiaFest and it never disappoints. So please, uh, consider coming. Also coming up, uh, the last, the final and fifth Uh, Convocation number five The Queen's Circulation uh, At the Goddess Temple in Orange County On uh, Saturday, September 4th That's the Saturday of uh, Labor Day weekend Uh, The topic is going to be Money, Career, and Service It's uh, $65 per woman Uh, You get a wonderful dinner for that Ritual, gold keepsake pen uh, And the wisdom of, uh, of Ava who, um, who has put together this Queen of Your Realm uh, Convocation series uh, that will reflect the book that she will uh, shortly have out. And um, I wanted to uh, make sure you know this weekend, Avatar, uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, returns this week with never before scenes. Uh, you know, just when I desperately needed a dose of feel-good uh, to get me through the ugliness of the nightly news, I heard Avatar was returning to the big screen next weekend. Well, actually this weekend. And um, I just felt like revisiting Pandora is just what my weary psyche needed. Uh, So I uh, checked back in and revisited my old uh, original interview uh, review. Sorry, my original review of the movie that I did uh, on Examiner.com. Uh, I mean, uh, that uh, talked about Jake and the Navi and their victory on Pandora. You know, I'll never forget as Jake Sully prayed to the Mother Goddess of the indigenous Navi, kneeling before her at the Tree of Souls. He employed her. He implored her for her help saying that his race, the Earthlings, called the Sky People, that they had destroyed their mother on Earth, and now they were coming the next day to destroy her. Such a potent scene. Um, I can't watch that scene, actually, without getting tears in my eyes. Um, I just felt uh, this movie was such a statement about, um, you know, what's, what's going on in the world. Um, you know, it was as if... Uh, you know, Avatar stood as a testament to every indigenous culture decimated by imperialism or colonialism. Um... You know, that, uh, you know, it spoke, uh, you know, clearly avatar speaks to our long history of humanity's exploitation of nature and the disregard for the interconnection of life. It spoke uh, boldly for the little guy or gal beaten down by the bullies struggling at the bottom of the heap, who, um, whoever or wherever they might be. It just sheds light on the short-sighted, selfish, and self-centered, dominator, patriarchal society in which we live. So please, um, go see it again. Um, I am. I'm going to go see it in 3D and look forward to those never-before scenes, and I'll probably have my box of tissues. (laughs) I'll have my box of tissues with me right there. Um, If you haven't already heard, um, I am... um, putting together a trip to uh, Turkey uh, in in November 2011. Uh, The itinerary is about to go up on the Internet, probably by the end of the week. Uh, uh, It's going to be for men and women, and we're only going to take about 20 people. So if you think you're interested, let me know sooner rather than later. I'd also like to invite you to join me on Facebook, where uh, we have lots of back-and-forth talk. Uh, We really have a lot of fun there on Facebook. So um, become one of my friends, and uh, we can enjoy chatting with each other, um, you know, practically every day. And for listeners who are getting to know me a bit better, um, as I said at the top of the hour, I have two years of archived radio shows on my website from when I was on Passionate Internet Voices Radio. They're right there, downloadable and free. Um, please take advantage of it. Uh, go to the media page on my website and catch all the radio interviews I've actually done. People interviewing me. You can go to my YouTube channel where I have some wonderful videos of the ISIS Temple of Thanksgiving, Seth Metz Mountain Sanctuary, snippets of lectures I. Gave uh, even the audition that I um, that garnered six hundred thousand votes almost uh, for uh, Oprah's network, and uh, there are also free downloadable meditations on my website. You can um, you can you can take advantage of. You just go to the Goddess Store page, scroll down to the free meditations, and there are three or four of them there. Some spring meditations and some um, meditations that take you on a guided journey. Uh, to uh, an ISIS temple in Egypt or uh, some Sekhmet meditations that help you get a sense of who Sekhmet is and um, why she's such an important archetype of empowerment for women today. And uh, while you're there at the Goddess Store, please check out my two books, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, which has garnered prestigious uh, endorsements, and Walking an Ancient Path, which um, won a place as a finalist in the USA National uh, Best Books of 2008. Uh, It has been said that uh, that book stands boldly against the patriarchal denigration of the Divine Feminine, and I am very, very proud of that. So... Well, that sign, uh, that sound means um, we're getting ready to close tonight's show with tonight's evening prayer. So I invite you to close your eyes and take a deep breath with me. And bring an even deeper focus uh, to the words I'm about to share with you. So breathe in and out. Shake off. All the things we've been talking about tonight, and let your focus go within. Uh, Go to that place where we connect with the divine, with our mother, with our sacred self. And uh, tonight, because the controversy is still swirling about religious freedoms and hate and all of those things, um, I'm going to read a prayer uh, about religious tolerance Goddess, your names and faces are many. Your ideals have been tinted by cultures, eras, politics, and social trends. Yet the core of universal truth remains. In every tree and brook, every star and stone, this is the nucleus of all humankind's spirit. Help us to see this central root as a binding tie through which we all can be nourished and nurtured. While our words are different, they mean much the same. The differences that separate us come from limited human vision, which cannot look beyond dogma. Broaden our understanding and vision to see as you see, to identify each other as brothers and sisters of spirit. The path of beauty is many things to many people, but it always leads back to you. Help us recognize that you are the sacred parent. Any power so great as to create our diversity cannot be confined to one image or one creed. Help us find wonder and joy in our differences and appreciate our similarities. Today and always, we are all children of one family, both divine yet mortal, the family of humankind. Let acceptance among people of all faiths be cherished as a great virtue. So be it. And if you want a copy of that prayer, um, I found it by Googling Prayer for Religious Tolerance, and it's on the website, theworldaroundyou.com. Uh, it doesn't, uh, doesn't have the author's name, unfortunately, but I think you'll be able to find it. So, um, listeners, let me say, may we all find our voice and use it in whatever way we can. Let us be her roar. Uh, And as you put your head on your pillow tonight, um, this is just a nice little uh, closing prayer that so reminds me of, uh, you know, what we teach our children. Now I lay me down to sleep. Please help me learn my world to keep, to guard the air and skies of blue, the oceans, lakes, and rivers too. Save the mighty forest lands, the plains, the shores, the desert sands. Protect all creatures wild and free, in air, on land, and in the sea. I, I thank um, Jan for sending that to uh, my Facebook page to share with you. So listeners, um, until next week, let me say good night and thanks for tuning in. I hope you'll be back with us next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern, or from the archives at your convenience. And uh, since we still have a few minutes left, I am going to take this rare opportunity to uh, let you hear um, Am Sekmet by Abigail Spinner McBride. So enjoy. Progressive brings you flowetry with flow. Ring around the rosy, the rosy. In this case, being your car and home insurance bundled together to save you money. Oh, so cozy. Ashes, ashes. The mic falls down. Bundle home and auto and save with Progressive. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Fios is not cable. We're wired differently, which means you can get the fastest internet available with equal upload and download speeds from 50 to 500 megs. So you can upload 200 photos before your favorite song is finished. Click the ad and switch to Fios today to get our best offer ever.